Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, and Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent. Down the line from Hong Kong, we're joined by George Hammond, our correspondent there, and also our guest this week. In conversation with Rob Armstrong, our US financial editor, is John Garvey, the global head of financial services at PwC. This week, we'll be taking a look at HSBC as it deals with the fallout from the protests in Hong Kong. A look at Societe Generale as its chief executive tells the Financial Times that he is on the lookout for merger or acquisition deals in Europe. And finally, that interview with John Garvey from PwC and his outlook for the themes that are going to characterise 2020. First, though, to HSBC. And we're going to go over now to George Hammond, who's our correspondent in Hong Kong. George has been quite a week or so for HSBC. There's been alongside a revitalized protest movement, there's been some concrete impact on HSBC in terms of vandalism and other things. Tell us exactly what's going on. Well, concrete or indeed bronze, they have come under attack in the last couple of weeks in protests which have kind of developed and taken on a new target. So it had been the Chinese banks, which had been in the crosshairs of protesters. So if you haven't been keeping up with the news on this, it's the Protests, I think they're now into their eighth month in Hong Kong, and very broadly they're pro-democracy, anti-Beijing, and hence the targeting of the Chinese banks. But HSBC got embroiled in this a couple of weeks ago over an account closure, and I've just been past their headquarters, which is one of the most iconic buildings in Hong Kong, and outside are these two great grand bronze lions, and they have been put in boxes in the last week, That's because they were targeted last week by protesters who set them on fire and threw paint on them. And as well as that, HSBC branches and and ATMs have been targeted. And the bank has a massive, massive presence here. It's called just The Bank by locals here because it's so ubiquitous. So for them to be targeted is a bit of a new stage in this. It had been the more peripheral banks and now now it's the real core business. And as you say, the trigger for this seems to have been the fact that they closed down, allegedly at the behest of the authorities, an account which had been used by the protesters to amass funding to support their activities. So far, these protests and and the vandalism has been relatively small scale, but a lot is at stake here, isn't it? What are people saying about where it could go from here? So a huge amount is at stake. Combined with Hang Seng, who are their local sister bank, I think it's approaching 40% of the retail market here is dominated by HSBC, and this is a city of 7 million or so. Important to emphasize on your first point. So the bank says that the closure of this account, it's um, an account opened by a group called Spark Alliance, who are a kind of crowdfunding operation who raise money from individuals and put it towards protest activities. HSBC say they closed that account, I think it was back in November. It was flagged on a standard know your customer issue. They had 
I think, effectively an issue with the fact that the account had been set up for one purpose and it had exceeded that remit. There was far more money coming in and out of it than had been established at the outset. And HSBC put some questions to Spark Alliance, they say, which Spark Alliance couldn't answer. As a result, they took the procedure and closed it down. The police then got involved a month later and, and arrested four of the leaders of Spark Alliance, froze a whole load of funds. And protesters have conflated those two things and basically see HSBC as being complicit with the arrests. But HSBC, there's a high chance that if you're a protester, you will have an account with HSBC. You might think, do I really want to kind of spite myself in, in that way? And so far, it's been fairly sporadic. There were calls to renovate HSBC branches by protesters online. As yet, that has not yielded a massive torching campaign of branches. But as, as I said, some ATMs, some branches and the iconic lions have all been targeted. Well, thanks, George. Let me bring David Crow in, our banking editor. David, HSBC is right in the middle of this conflict between Beijing and Hong Kong, isn't it? I mean, it couldn't be a more tricky political challenge for them. No, and it sort of has been going on for a long time. So this is, if you like, the sort of second big flashpoint in this. The first centred around Huawei, the Chinese telecoms giant, and HSBC's involvement in its prosecution by the US government. HSBC cooperated with the US government, handed them a ton of information that basically paved the way for Huawei's prosecution. And that time round ended up drawing ire from the Chinese government. So the simplistic reading of this is that they irritated Beijing that time. Now they're trying to seek favour with Beijing. Yeah. So people inside the bank say that they were in the penalty box after Huawei and that they are now out of the penalty box and they are desperate to stay out of it. And I think in a broader context... This couldn't come at a worse time for HSBC. They don't have a CEO at the moment. They have an interim CEO. He is working on a massive restructuring plan. And bank restructurings are often compared to sort of four-engine jumbo jets. When you're taking out a couple of the engines to repair, you really need those other two engines to still be firing or the whole plane goes down. And the danger for HSBC is that it attempts this massive restructuring and at the same time, things go very wrong in Hong Kong, and it is its biggest engine. And if that happens, it's not difficult to build a doomsday scenario. So they must be very worried indeed. Yeah, they are keeping their heads down, it has to be said, on this topic. We have to hope for their sake that it doesn't blow up further. Let's move on to our second topic and a look at Société Générale, the French bank whose chief executive and chairman both spoke to us. Stephen, you wrote up a very interesting piece about how SocGen is very keen to be at the forefront of what they predict may be an M&A cycle in European banking. They want to be an acquirer of other banks. First of all, Frederic Udaya, the, the chief executive of SocGen, what was his principal message and what are the chances of him succeeding? Well, it comes off the back of a bit of a bruising 11 and a half years for Mr. Udaya, who's um, guided SocGen through a lot of the fallout of the crisis and rogue trading scandals, but is currently in a bit of a slump as the investment bank earnings fall off, corporate and retail banking are hit by negative interest rates. And the bank has some sort of idiosyncratic problems as well. Like it just isn't really big enough in a post-crisis world to make a sufficient return. 
So their eyes have been turned for a little while towards potential mega mergers, either within the country or across Europe, to try and form a bigger bank, meaning they could cut costs, they'd have more clients, they'd have more swing, and it would really sort of restore them to their pre-crisis relevance. So Mr. Odeo told us that, you know, basically the bank is worth 40% of the net value of his assets, which means at the moment it is not in a position to be going out and trying to do deals with anyone. What they're seeing, their mission is at the moment, the chairman and the CEO, is to tidy it up, slash back the investment bank, try and boost earnings from digital, from other sources, and particularly from their international retail banking. So there are some selling points, but it's difficult to see SockGen acquiring another European bank, aside from another one that's in distress, like Commerce Bank, as it is at the moment. So the piece kind of looks at what are their major issues to address. We also do a little bit of digging into why the mood music is changing in wider Europe. Olaf Scholz, the German finance minister, conditionally raised his opposition to a common Eurozone deposit insurance scheme. And that, for Mr Udea, is the point at which he feels that'd be a trigger for, for M&A, and he exactly. wants to be on the front foot there. Yeah, he's much more optimistic than other people about this deal being done. He thinks it could be sorted within three years, which would clear the pathway to potential further capital markets union across the Eurozone as well. So bonds issued in any country would have the same legal status and ability to be traded and moved throughout the countries, as is the case with the whole of the United States at the moment, which is why it's a much stronger market. So he's the longest serving big bank CEO in Europe. And he still seems to be full of energy. He recently was re-elected despite a 60% fall in the share price during his 11 and a half years in charge. He was re-elected with a staggering amount of positive votes from the investor base for another four years. But this really is kind of make or break time for him. Will his legacy be a much safer, secure, potentially much larger after having bought a rival or at least in a position to, or will they kind of still be struggling on as kind of a subscale also ran that was left behind in the post-crisis financial world? Let's move on to our third and final topic. And we go over now to Rob Armstrong, our US finance editor, who has been talking to John Garvey. John is the global head of financial services at PwC. Rob has been talking to him about some of the big picture stuff that's affecting banking at the moment and is likely to dominate 2020 from the gap between US, European and, for that matter, Chinese banking, the digital transformation of banks and also the prospect for smaller institutions. You have global experience of banking. And one thing our readers are very interested in is the difference between what's going on in the US and in Europe and what's going on in China and how the two industries are evolving. What are the big differences you see and the big similarities? How are the two different industries changing? Well, it, there is a period of divergence between the different markets at the moment. Maybe take the use of technology and fintechs in banking, for example. In China, in the last decade, through the regulatory regime, they've created a real ecosystem of tech companies that are offering financial services to Chinese clients. Whereas in the US, the regulatory regime, which would cause a full regulation of the tech company itself, yes. really has meant that fintechs and digital-only players have not been affiliated with the tech companies. And the tech companies have really worked together with the banks more in partnerships. 
Yeah. So, I mean, we see that people do their everyday banking through a WeChat, right, in China. Do you think we'll get to that point in the United States? We've seen the start of some partnerships or news of nascent partnerships in the U.S. Is the U.S. heading more in the Chinese direction, do you think? Or is it going to remain a difference in the way the regulation works? I think the key goal is innovation and improving the customer experience in both markets. The regulatory structure in both markets dictates or drives you towards different options, as I said. So I think we will continue to see in the United States partnerships between large tech players and banks. At some point, will a large tech player choose to be regulated like a bank? We'll see. Personally, I don't see that happening in the foreseeable future. Well, of course, all banks are extremely concerned about getting more digital as fast as they can to keep up with the demands of clients. I know you work with the companies you work with on improving bankers' tech skills. Talk about some of the challenges there and some of the opportunities as well. Yeah, it's a great point. The topic of digital upskilling of workers is actually much more than a financial services topic. It's actually a competitiveness and societal topic. Interestingly enough, several governments were actually working with on this topic. When you look at the kind of micro financial institution, what we're talking about is turning an analog workforce into what we call a digital workforce and making people, and it's various levels, but it's one, aware and understanding what digital actually is, what the underlying technologies are, and then skilling those people in some of the technology tools which exist that are actually quite accessible to normal professionals. You don't have to be an IT professional. There are tools around robotic process automation. There are tools around dashboarding and, and analysis and analytics that are now very accessible to your typical college-educated professional with the right training. I mean, for us at the FT, it was kind of a nightmare getting from newspaper world to digital world. It took us five years of just thinking about the work processes and how the day looks in a new way. Are banks doing any better? Are banks, or I should say bank workers, coming kicking and screaming into this process? Or, Well, I think it, it's right to say that the younger people tend to be more flexible. There's more for your typical older person to learn and to understand, and also depending on the job, right? If you're an analyst in a finance function, using these tools is probably a natural extension. If you're a clerk in, in a bank branch, maybe that whole job or part of that job goes away and you have to learn something new. There are a lot of differences that people need to get attuned to, not just learning the technology. It might be a different job, a different location. Are some banks doing it well? I mean, is it is it working, I guess is the question. I think there's a broader topic here, which we haven't yet discussed, but it's around productivity. So and this is one of the levers of productivity. So I, we're starting to see that the banks that are better at creating a productive workforce platform process set are doing better financially, and therefore that's starting to get reflected in share prices. A lot of the smaller banks, especially that I cover, are really struggling with low rates. Very hard to be, I don't want to say subscale, but a non-massive bank in the United States now and make money just taking deposits and making loans. What are banks doing to kind of respond to the environment? What's working? What's not? What's going to change because of the low rate environment? So I think two aspects of this. One is 
in this low rate environment, the business mix changes. You're looking for more fee-based work, less net interest margin type work uh, or business. The problem is for the smaller and medium-sized banks, that that's nearly impossible. So this is a really question. We expect to see further consolidation in this market. And there's also digital-only competitors coming after them in each of their micro-segments as well. So we expect the number of banks in the U.S. to continue to drop fairly precipitously. But also, there's a broader question about whether financial services and banking, either the banks create a broader platform where they put ancillary services around banking, or they become part of a larger platform where banking services are an input into that platform. But remains to be seen how that shakes out. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much to David, Stephen, George and Rob, and also our guest John Garvey from PwC. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Persis Love. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.